So though we've already done the confession of sin in the service, I have to begin my sermon with a confession. Because last week I said this would be our final week in Philippians. (laughs) But that'll actually be next week. Maybe. (laughs) Because as I rolled up my sleeves and got my hands dirty in the soil of the verse this week, I realized I won't be able to fit the final verses into the sermon and do them any sort of justice, so I will deal with the end of the letter, Lord willing, um, next week. Or maybe I just have separation anxiety and I can't let go of Philippians. I'll leave that diagnosis to those who are more qualified with such things within our congregation. Well, today is really a continuation of where we were last week. This is kind of part two, so please do open up your copy of God's Word. We will be in Philippians chapter 4, and I will, I'll read verses 14 through 19, but verse 18 is really where we are going to, to hover today. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 19, again, this is the word of the Lord. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul is speaking about the remarkable generosity that the Philippians have shown him throughout his ministry. Last week, we even saw how he helped to foot the bill for the work that he did uh, in the Corinthian church that was in large measure sponsored by Paul's work, but also the Philippians coming alongside of him. And we also saw that it was not because they were especially wealthy, that they were a well-off church. Quite the opposite. Remember that Paul told the Corinthians that the church that was especially generous was in extreme poverty. And, he says, they were incredibly joyful and generous, despite their poverty. The Philippians gave the bread from their own table that they were about to eat. The Philippians gave the cloak that they were wearing. And they did it all with joy while rummaging through the drawers to make sure there was nothing else that they could possibly send. This is what Christ had done in the Philippian heart. And so they stand as exemplars to us of joyful, sacrificial Christian generosity. And in these verses, Paul's encouragement to the Philippians help us to to formulate what we could think of as a sort of theology of generosity. As Christians, what ought to drive our impulse, our reflex, our desire, our creativity in being generous? What should motivate that? Well, of course, we ought to be generous because of how generous God has been towards us. And we ought to be generous because of the generous, generosity of Christ giving himself. And for sure. And we may be tempted to say, 
What other motivation have we need of? Yet, the Bible itself gives us more motivations. It gives us more categories than just give because Christ gave. And in our text here, the Lord himself, through the Apostle Paul, gives us two other motivations that are, of course, connected to the motivation on how Christians ought to think about Christian generosity. And it's what in these messages I've called the seed and sacrifice of generosity. So that's the umbrella over both messages. And we do need motivation because generosity is not natural. Clinging to stuff is natural. You don't have to teach your 18-month-old how to be selfish. That's not a lesson you have to give them. You don't have to teach them how to tighten their grip when their sister comes near the doll. You don't have to say, okay, now then you grab it really hard and you, you pull it to yourself. You do not have to teach that. We are born with a tight grip. We are born clinging. That's why this takes sanctification. Christian generosity is the product of Christian maturity, of thinking and acting more like Jesus Christ on purpose. That's what sanctification is, being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And remember from last week, when I say generosity in these sermons, I'm not just speaking of money or, or stuff. I'm thinking more broadly. I'm thinking of being generous with our, our time and with our giftings and, and with our stuff. It's not less than that. But generosity is being others-oriented with all that we have and all that we are. I'm thinking holistically about not just doing a generous thing, but becoming a generous Christian. Last week, we looked at the motivation of understanding that Christian generosity is seed that we sow. We saw that in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Pastor Paul said, what really excites me about your generosity towards me is not what I got out of it, but what you'll get out of it. The principle being God has given us temporal seed that if we hoard, will rot. But if we release by faith, will be transfigured into something eternal. Or as Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the big idea of that. He's no fool who, who gives what he couldn't keep to then gain what he cannot now lose. That was last week. And today, we're looking at the second one in the text. So Paul is continuing to, to pull back the curtain to say, Philippians, when you gave to me, it wasn't just a gift. It was something far more. It was seed and it was a sacrifice before God. And I pray that we'll see that by the end of this sermon, namely that it was a sacrifice, as a much more compelling reality than perhaps we even initially realize. And so let's put the, the verse under, under this. It's verse 18. This is where we see the motivation. He says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. So again, last week we were talking about Paul's not writing this to try to leverage a little bit more out of them. That that's not his goal here. He's saying, I, ha I have enough. You don't have to send anymore. I just want you to understand 
what it is that you did. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And here it is. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And I want you to see what I'm seeing in the text. That, that Paul puts that there on purpose. Because he didn't have to say the bit about sacrifice here and, and make the point. He could have simply said, it was fruit that will increase, I'm well supplied, I'm so thankful, and then moved on. But he didn't. And he didn't for good reason. And it's because he wanted the Philippians to understand something awesome about Christian generosity. That their gifts in the eye of heaven was something so much more than the physical composite pieces of what they gave. They were, namely, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And those three descriptors are, are not random. He's like, how do I... He did not think, how do I, in a compelling way, talk about the sacrifice they give? That's not what he did. Those three descriptors are the technical language for a sacrifice in the Old Testament. This is very intentional and very specific, and it is an awesome thing. He says, Philippians, you made a sacrifice through Epaphroditus when I got the gift. And that is an awesome thing. Yet this reality that we now as Christians can offer pleasing sacrifices does not initially land on us moderns with the, with the full weight. First, because we're 2,000 years away from the Old Testament animal sacrifice practice, and so we miss the visceral intensity that this language would conjure. We miss the sight and the sound and the smells that would arise in the Philippians' mind when they think of those words of blood and of bleeding and of priests and of altars and of temples. So us moderns don't have the visceral response. And so our temptation, if we don't do the work, is to think, well, that's, that's cool that they sacrificed. It's something completely more than that, if that's a sentence. But we also miss the weight of what Paul is saying here if we aren't thoroughly steeped in our Old Testament. Because it's there that we understand better the meaning of this type of sacrifice. What it is and, and what it does and what it says about the one who is allowed to offer it. Sacrifice in ancient Israel was a high and holy thing. Paul is speaking of holy things by using this language. But our understanding of the concept of sacrifice, perhaps, in the modern church is sometimes condensed down to there was a bunch of it in the Old Testament, then Christ came and fulfilled it, and that's kind of what sacrifice is, which is certainly and gloriously true, but that statement is far from the full picture. That exact phrase, a fragrant offering, that, that Greek word that he uses, is used all throughout the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so he's using the exact phrase there that's peppered all throughout the Septuagint. And so he's drawing from a deep well here. The idea of sacrifice is not just a museum piece in the church that is now outdated. It's not just a mere metaphor. 
Paul didn't say the gifts that Epaphroditus brought were like a fragrant offering and like a sacrifice that would be acceptable and pleasing. He says they were now, that God received them as such. So sacrifice is still a very real part of our lives as Christians. Of course, we no longer sacrifice animals or grains or make libations, but we still do, according to this text and others, offer very real sacrifices to the Lord, whether we realize it or not. And the Apostle Paul wanted them to realize it. He's, he's instructing them. Yes, they look different now in Christ, but our sacrifices are not any less real in God's eyes. And the New Testament often still uses the language of sacrifice when speaking of Christian worship. For instance, consider Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16. The author writes this, Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruits of lips that acknowledge his name, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in that text alone, we have two what we could call new covenant sacrifices. A sacrifice of praise, which we'll talk more about in our series on covenant renewal worship. What are we doing in our time together? And we'll see we're offering sacrifices, but also the sacrifice of generosity like we have in our text today. And again, and, and, and I, want you to, I want you to see this, this language is not just a metaphor. It is tapping into deep realities that give immense dimension and motivation to our generosity as Christians. And so that's what I want us to consider, consider in the remainder of our time. What's so awesome about the reality that our generosity is a sacrifice before God. When the Philippians read that, and they were astonished, why would they have been astonished? What is so profound about that? And I have two main insights for us. The first one has to do with what this says about our status, our identity, or our office in Christ, and it's this. Sacrifice is a privilege reserved for priests. Sacrifice is a privilege reserved for priests. In the Old Testament, God established the, the priesthood, namely Aaron and his sons in Leviticus 8, and they were the ones whom Yahweh allowed to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to, to make atonement for the congregation. Sacrifice was the way that sinful people could dwell with the holy God. And you could not just come into the presence of God whenever you wanted. There was a sacrificial ritual required. And this was a solemn privilege and responsibility reserved for the priests only. So it's not like you could even say, I want to go see God, so I'll just bring a sacrifice whenever I want. That's not how it worked. You had to go through the priests. And even they had to do it in the exact way Yahweh commanded. This was a big deal. 
And there are several instances in Scripture where we see unauthorized or unacceptable sacrifices being offered. And so it helps us understand the weightiness of this reality. For instance, in Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were priests, so they were allowed to offer sacrifice, they offered what some translations call strange fire. It was an unauthorized sacrifice. And the Lord struck them dead immediately at the altar after they did that. It was unacceptable and unfragrant and displeasing because they did not regard the Lord's instruction. It was rebellious. And so God was teaching Israel about the nature of their sin and of his holiness, that even the priests ought not trifle with the sacrifices. Or in 1 Samuel 15, we find another instance of an unacceptable attempt at sacrifice that God refused. And this time, the issue was with both the sacrificer and the sacrifice. And the person who tried was King Saul. And God had told King Saul, so so Saul is the Lord's anointed, he told him to go and fight the Amalekites and devote them to total destruction, including the animals and the livestock. And this was God meeting out vengeance on the Amalekites because of what they had done to Israel earlier. So Saul was an instrument of God's justice. And he didn't, he did do it, he did attack them and he did destroy the Amalekites, but he kept all the best animals alive. So Samuel the prophet goes to meet Saul and Saul is totally pumped. He's thrilled. He says, I did everything that Yahweh required of me. I nailed it. And Samuel says, well, then what in the world is that bleating I hear in the background? To which Saul says, well, I decided that I would keep all the best animals alive so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord. But we destroyed everything else. In mid-sentence, the prophet says, stop. It's actually quite abrupt in the text. Stop talking right now. You were not to do that. You do not sacrifice on your own terms. It doesn't matter how noble your intentions were. You are the king, not a priest. And that was cavalier and disobedient. Even King Saul couldn't saunter in and offer a sacrifice. And that's 1 Samuel 15. Because of that, the Lord rejects Saul. And the next chapter is when David is anointed. And so this was a big deal. Not even the king, not even the anointed one could offer Yahweh a pleasing sacrifice. This was a privilege given to the priests. They were the ones who had altar access by grace. They were the only ones who could deal directly and immediately with God by grace. And yet, in our text today, Paul, knowing the Old Testament backwards and forwards, under the inspiration of God Almighty, tells them, those gifts you sent, they were a fragrant offering now. Not like they were an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to this God, to God rather. So the question we must ask is, how could this be? Does this mean that God lowered the standard of those who could offer sacrifice? Not at all. It reveals how Jesus Christ has elevated our status to that of priests, 
that when Christ declared from the cross that it is finished, the veil was torn. And which veil was that? It was the veil into the Holy of Holies. Through Christ, our great high priest, we now have direct access to the Father because we have been sanctified once for all through his blood, which means we are all now in the priesthood. This is the glorious doctrine that the Reformers called the priesthood of all believers. There's not just professional Christians and then the laity. They said, no, we are all priests unto our God. And we are all now allowed, indeed called, to give sacrifice. And because of Christ, they are perfectly fragrant and perfectly pleasing. And this is a big deal. Just ask Nadab and Abihu. So much so that when the heavenly host realized what Jesus Christ accomplished, a feat as astonishing as not just saving a rebellious people, but the office that he gave them, listen to their response. And again, even like we said in, in, our, in our confession of sin, obviously these are tying together, I want you to understand here that the angels are responding to what they realize Christ did for you, not for themselves. They're holy. They, they weren't ransomed. And so they're watching, oh, this is what Christ did for them. And this was the response. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. Then they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So Christ's blood did far more than just ransom us, which is astonishing on its own right. But he did more. He made his church, including Pilgrim Hill, into a kingdom. And we are all endowed with priestly authority to offer sacrifice to God. And one of the great problems in the church is that we do not see the incredible dignity and authority and redemptive power that has been bestowed to us through our union with Christ. The angels saw it, and they were astonished. Peter, trying to awaken this wonder in his church, says this. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Christians, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession, that you may now proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So how could the Philippians send an acceptable sacrifice? Because they're priests now. And how could Epaphroditus deliver this sacrifice? Because he's a priest now. They, like the sacrifices of old, though different, now ascend up to the Father, and it is a pleasing aroma to him. And this is not just a cute Christian thought. This is a dignity and a privilege of cosmic proportion. 
This is a reality that made the angels shudder in awe when they realized it. So let's think of this when we give of ourselves and of our stuff in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's see the smoke ascending up into the throne room and marvel that in Christ we're priests who have just now made a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. And so what's the big deal that our generosity is spoken of here as sacrifice in the technical sense? First, we just saw that it is a privilege that was reserved for priests, and it still is reserved for priests, but we're all priests now. We all have immediate access to the Father. And then number two, sacrifice is an aroma that God responds to. A privilege reserved for priests and an aroma that God responds to. Paul says that the gifts they sent were a fragrant aroma. So the, the picture is of the scent of a burnt offering ascending into the throne room. And God smells it and he loves it, but he doesn't just smell it. He then responds to it. One of the most clear examples we see of God responding to the pleasing aroma of a sacrifice is in Genesis 8, 20, verse, verses 20 through 22. So this is Noah after the flood, and it says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered a burnt or ascension offering on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, it's the same phrase in the Septuagint as what Paul said in Philippians, when the, Lord, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord then said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And this was the institution of the Noahic Covenant. And what does the text say caused God to respond that way with a redemptive purpose? Because he smelled the pleasing aroma, and then he said in his heart his intention. It was through Noah's sacrifice that God, in his great grace, responded with an incredible blessing. A blessing that was far bigger than just Noah, that then ricocheted and reverberated out through all the world, just like our sacrifices do. And God put a rainbow in the sky so that we would never forget it. Make no mistake, God responds to the pleasing aroma of sacrifice in greater ways than we can ever even imagine. Just look at Noah. Yet Noah is not the best example of this. There was a moment when a better sacrifice was made that was an even more pleasing aroma, and it was the perfect sacrificial offering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And that aroma, the aroma of his perfect blood, went up to the Father. And when the Father smelled that, he was well pleased. He was perfectly pleased. Ephesians 5.2, again, notice the language. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then God responded by establishing a covenant that was better than Noah's. He established the new covenant. And this covenant came with a far better promise than Noah's. God responded to the sacrifice Noah made by promising that he would never curse the land again with a flood. 
But God responded to the better sacrifice Christ made by promising that he would remove the curse that was on us because of our sin. And more than that, he has established us, as we just saw, as priests in his kingdom. And Paul reveals to the Philippians that though no more sacrifice is needed for sin, Christ did that once for all, we do now continually sacrifice to God But that sacrifice gets caught up in Christ's sacrifice. And it is instantly, when given in Christ's name, acceptable and pleasing to God and efficacious for redemptive purposes in our corner of the kingdom. There was a time that our works, our sacrifices were abhorrent to God, displeasing and disgusting, because in ourselves there is nothing good. All of our attempts at righteous works on our own are filthy rags. And if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if there is no living, no active faith, no love for the Lord Jesus, that is your current situation. You are not in Christ, and you cannot please. And your point of action today is to repent and to believe in Christ so that his sacrifice becomes applied to you. But for those who have and are trusting in Jesus Christ, for the true church, your sacrifices are pleasing to your Heavenly Father. And he responds to the sacrifice of glad generosity because in Christ they are sweet and in Christ they are compelling and in Christ they stir his fatherly heart with fresh affection and fresh intention to bless us and bless our land and to bring those into the kingdom who were far off. So Pilgrim Hill, let us not think small thoughts about our opportunities towards generosity. Remember the final day, what did the Lord say will be one of the obvious examples of those who were sheep and those were goats. You gave a cup of cold water in my name. You're clearly a Christian. It mattered. The Philippian passage exists so that we don't think small thoughts about Christian generosity. Whenever we have the opportunity to be generous with with all that we are and all that we have, to to live open-handedly, it is seed that grows into eternity, and it is a sacrifice that God responds to. And so Christians, let's lift up our eyes this week and see altars abounding. There are altars all over the place if we'll be on the lookout. Children, find altars everywhere. And here's how you can tell if you're on the lookout for an altar as a Christian. Do you get excited about blessing others? Or do you get excited about getting more than others? Do you race to the front of the line? Or are you eager to let others ahead of you? And children, I'm talking to you now. How do you respond when your parents ask for help with a chore? Eager and cheerful or annoyed and disrespectful? That was an altar moment. Will you give of yourself freely or be forced? The first is a pleasing and acceptable sacrifice. The second one, that is a stench in his nostrils. So children, be on the lookout for altars because you too are priests unto our God. And adults, there are altars everywhere. Through helping with a specific financial need that you know about in a family, through opening up your home and hospitality and all the work that comes with that, through helping your neighbor with a project that they're working on, through a thousand other creative opportunities, the Lord gives to be generous. There are altars everywhere when we look to live open-handedly on purpose. In Christ, we are priests. 
And so I'm saying, let's be so on purpose. And as I said last week, in conclusion, my main goal in these two messages was not to put one specific opportunity before us. So there's not a funnel here to say, now let's all do that. That's, that's not wrong to do. That's just not my purpose. Rather, I wanted us to collectively marvel at what Christian generosity is and then let that sanctify us so that we are becoming an even more generous people. But with that being said, one of my desires for us as a congregation as we enter into year two of a people having established a bit of a core is to find, we could call it a communal altar in our land, um, a, a place that we can purposely pour ourselves into consistently as a church. So I, I desire that for us. And so if you have something that your heart is inflamed about, where we can minister, maybe monthly, or it would just be that place where if we stopped existing, they would really be bummed about. Um, I, long, I long for that. Um, so let's be praying about that. And if you have an idea, let me know, and we will certainly talk about it. Let's be watchful and prayerful that we may be a blessing to our city as priests on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will be pleased, and he will expand his kingdom. He has promised to do so, and he will surely do it. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at these things. We long to be as astonished as the angels at what Christ has accomplished for us, but we confess that we are often distracted or, or unmoved. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would pull back the veil a little more and that we could behold just how glorious the gospel is, just how rich your loving kindness is, just how thorough your salvation is towards us. And I do pray, Lord, as, as a congregation, that we would be a, a city on a hill that pours out blessings into our communities, into our families, into our schools, into the businesses in the area. And I do pray, Lord, that you would open up a specific place that we could administer to on behalf of Christ as priests. And now we would pray the way the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And amen.